Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is The Flex Story with my friend Dave Glick. How's it going, Dave? Great. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Yes, yes. We were just reminiscing. Dave is a Michiganian or a Michigander, I think they call us. Michigander. Yeah, yeah. I like Michiganian better. That keeps coming up every time I have a Michigan person on. We have that debate, but it is Michigander. I checked. We could say Wolverine. <laughs> yes, you're a Wolverine. Well, see, we have Spartans here too. So one of my last podcasts was with a Spartan. So anyway, Dave, before we get any further, please introduce yourself and your company. Hi, my name is Dave Glick. Uh, I work at a company called Flex. I'm the chief technology officer. Well, we do Flex is a marketplace for matching shippers who need fulfillment or distribution capacity with 3PLs who have existing capacity in their existing warehouses. It's an interesting space. And I was just telling uh, Dave when we were prepping that I've actually referred people to that. And, you know, there's Amazon Flex, which I think a lot of people have heard of. And I think Dave did some work there. We'll get into that in a minute. And then there's Flex, this company, similar, but very different. (laughs) They're both in logistics. They're both flexible, but um, this one's doing something a little bit different. Yep. We'll get into that in just a minute. But um, first off, Dave, where do you live? I live in Seattle metro area in on Mercer Island, which is sort of not the east side, not the west side. It's right in the middle. That's like a really nice place to live, I hear. It's great. And especially during the summer, the sun's out, 70 degrees all summer and uh, really beautiful. Yeah. As a Michigander, you can appreciate that lack of humidity. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I'm gonna, I always tell people when like, if you talk to people from California, they always say, oh, you're from Michigan. Have, have you ever been in weather this hot? I'm like, you don't have hot weather. This is California. You just you just have like, it'll be like 100 degrees, but it's not hot. <laughs> it's like, it's nice because you don't have the humidity that I'm used to here in my beloved mitten. That's for sure. <laughs> so anyway, Dave, before we get into the topic today, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Tell us a little bit about you as a young person. Yeah, it's actually interesting that we started talking about Michigan because I grew up in Detroit. Not Farmington Hills or Bloomfield Hills, but Detroit, Detroit. Usually when someone like me says I'm from Detroit, I'm not from, I'm from the suburbs of Detroit. Yeah, we uh, we grew up probably walking distance from Greektown, went to school in, in uh, Jeffrey's Projects, and went to school till I was 13 there. And then we moved to Columbia, Missouri, uh, where my dad was the Dean of Arts and Science at University of Missouri. Then I went back, nice. and, back for college to Ann Arbor. Yep. Before we go any further, I think just to put this in context for those of you who aren't familiar with the Detroit story, Detroit was, I think, one of the nicest places you could live at one time. And I've sometimes referred to it as the original Silicon Valley (laughs) or the Silicon Valley before Silicon Valley. At its peak, the city of Detroit had 2.1 million people. The last census, I think it had 635,000. So when Dave said he was from Detroit, my assumption is he's going to be from Farmington Hills or Bloomfield Hills or Dearborn or Troy or somewhere like that, which is where the population moved over the last generation. So like my dad grew up in Detroit and moved out 
his family moved in 1940 <laughs> 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 and uh, because the area was getting a little nasty. And he said, yeah, we wanted to live out in the country, which was the suburbs. For sure. And it's, it's a very sad story that you have Detroit was a sprawling city, lots of square mileage. And, you know, when it went from 2.1 million people to 600,000, they still had the same level oh, of need yeah. to police and provide fire support and all those things to this enormous uh, metropolitan area. Yeah, I think, I think I've heard, I'd, I'd have to double check this, but I think you could put Detroit, I think you put Boston and New York inside of Detroit. It's a, it's an enormous space. And then to your point, you had to patrol that. So they had like these neighborhoods where there'd be this old couple and they're the only house, only house on the block that was inhabited and tearing down tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of houses had to be done over the last year. And it's really stepped up in the last few years, but it's a, it is a horrible story. And again, it was, uh, it was a story that's probably very unique. I mean, it's happened in a lot of Northern cities, but you had this boom where everybody could make a great living. And then over time, more and more people were required to be educated and some people didn't get educated. And, but it used to be, you could be working in a factory and make a very good living. In fact, I have relatives who said, I went to school at University of Michigan with our beloved Wolverines and I've been better off if I was a tool and die maker or better yet working in the factory. So those days are gone. Still a nice place to live. But if you lived here now, you'd probably either live downtown, which is revitalized or uh, in one of the nice suburbs. Yeah, I, I was downtown a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, that's right. You were already beautiful. downtown. There was, uh, I lived downtown, but we went back and walked by the Tiger Stadium and the the football field and all those things. And it's great that they're moving back into the city. Yeah. Yeah. The city, the city has, has, has seen its renaissance. It's coming back. So, and, uh, you know, the lions, the tigers in second place, life is good. Anyway, sir. So you moved on to Missouri, then you went up to university of Michigan. What'd you study at U of M? I studied physics at U U of M. And then I went on to grad school at university of North Carolina where I got my PhD in physics. Really? So what were you planning to do with those physics degrees? I don't know. I was, <laughs> I, I, uh, you're just showing off that I can do physics and most of you can't. <laughs> well, my mom did tell me for those of you who can do it, you should do it. But you know, my dad was a chemist by training and then he went into university administration. And so I always thought, you know, my parents' friends were all doctors, lawyers, and professors. And I thought, you know, professor was what I was going to be. And I went to grad school and I was three years in called my dad and said, I'm not very good at physics. He said, oh, that's okay. I wasn't very good at chemistry either. And I was like, well, you should have told me that three years ago and I would have saved myself some time. But you still got a PhD in it. That's right. Well, what I found was that when I saw him as I was growing up, he was the chairman and the dean and the provost and so on. And that was like leading people. And I thought that was what professors do, but that's not. That's what people leaders do. And so I've ended up yeah, in a roundabout way, following in his footsteps as the leader of people. Right, right. But you got that technical underpinnings. It's yeah. nice to have that. Yes, it's very nice. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that happens at the universities. And I had this happen with one of my daughters. She's a, got a finance degree now and she's doing well. By the time she was a senior, she she didn't go to Michigan. She went to Michigan State. And by the time she was a senior in finance, she's taking finance that was very difficult. And she started saying, you know what? I'm really good at social media. I'm just going to be a social media person. I said, I'm going to graduate, but I'm never going to work in finance because I don't get it. And I was like, wait, the, the finance that you're doing, 
No one's going to ask you to do that when you get your first job. You might never be asked to do that. But if you're ever asked to do it, they're going to show you how to do it. They're going to have a process to follow. And in a way, the better you get, the more knowledge you get, you you start being in rare air. So you're hanging out with the, the one percentile in physics people and going, I'm not very good at this. But you were really good at it. It's just you're hanging out with people who are even better. Yes. Well, this is our I- life. Amazon is where overachievers go to feel bad about themselves. Or it's actually the physics departments <laughs> is where overachievers to go to feel bad about themselves. So speaking of Amazon, I know you have some experience there. So what was your first job? You So you went to school at Michigan, then you went down to uh, get your master or your PhD. What was your first gig? I came out to Seattle and my wife had gotten a postdoc at uh, University of Washington and I was living in, we were living in my friend's basement and I eventually got a job at Amazon as a junior IT project manager, which was, you know, kind of the most junior you can be at corporate. But I ended up the first year running around the country or flying around the country, setting up warehouses and and making sure the networks and the systems were there and they ran and they ran well. So what year was that? It was 1999. And so Amazon went from two warehouses for a total of about 250,000 square feet to we stood up five warehouses for a total of 3 million square feet wow. in one summer. <laughs> wow. So you were so you were flying around the country getting the IT set up for those? That's right. So that's where you that's where you started when you got there or is that's what you ended up doing? No, that was my first job at Amazon. Uh, was making <laughs> oh sure the network God. and the systems were there and the IT was set up and hiring some people to support IT. Super fun time, exhausting, but super fun. And, you know, at the time, uh, we set up 3 million square feet of warehouse space in one summer, which was unheard of. And, uh, you know, now they do that on a Tuesday at Amazon. Well, they didn't have like the, 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 you weren't using it out of the box. Here's the WMS system we're using. I'm assuming it's all proprietary. It probably wasn't much to buy off the shelf, I'm assuming. Um, There was a conversation we hired a bunch of folks from Walmart in to come design and build the new the new automated fulfillment centers. And there was a conversation about whether we should use Manhattan, uh, which is sort of the right. industry standard and they use at Walmart, or should we build our own? And, and we decided to build our own, which which ended up being prescient because, you know, no one really knew what, what fulfillment was back then. We even called the buildings, we called them distribution centers, not fulfillment centers at the time. Right. And uh, fulfillment is a whole different beast than distribution. Yeah, and it's interesting. I've said this before about every once in a while I'll talk to somebody, especially the people out in Silicon Valley or San Francisco, they'll say something along the lines of, yeah, this there's been underinvestment in this space and this space is behind technology-wise. And I was like, and I always say this, it was easy to network an office, right? It was harder when you had to network multiple offices. We're talking about a supply chain that spreads across maybe 10, 15 partners across the whole world. So, so when somebody thought it was really high tech that we networked all of our whole office or our whole company, that was easy. So in a lot of ways, trucking and warehousing, we were the last to get there. And those were maybe the lowest of the low tech businesses, not bad businesses, but lowest of the low tech and anything but. (laughs) Totally. And And you're kind of, and you're kind of responsible for some of those, (laughs) some of those technologies. So you started off traveling around the country, getting this tech so these places would run smoothly, then what? After that year, we had sort of built our physical plant. We didn't do a lot of expansion in the following years because 
we had built enough space to carry us through several years. And so I ran the systems engineering team that supported that infrastructure. Eventually, uh, you know, that was in sort of IT infrastructure space, systems engineering. Then I ran quality deployment and support. And at some point in about 2004, so five years into my career at Amazon, my boss told me, you know, IT is not really a growth industry. It's moving to AWS. You know, if you want to continue to grow your career, you need to be in software. And I wasn't a software developer by trade. And she kind of told me, you know, you may end up, if you're not a software developer, you know, this may be a dead end for you. And fortunately, Suresh Kumar, who's now the CTO at Walmart, he grabbed me and said, you know, I know I have a lot of people who can write code. I need people who can get stuff done. And so he gave me my first software team, which was two people. And it quickly grew to 50 people. And then uh, eventually over the years grew to, you know, thousands of people. So you talked about AWS. So please explain what that is. And then you mentioned that IT. So for those of us uh, who are not in that space, what was the difference? Was that the difference between on-premise and cloud? Yeah, actually, it's a, an interesting story, and it somewhat relates to flex and to warehousing as well. But IT, what we were doing in IT and systems engineering was, you know, designing, you know, what computers you use, database indexes, very hardware focused, making sure those were set up in the data center. And oftentimes they were individually built by hand, like configured by hand right. by system administrators back in 1999. And, you know, and so what you would do is you'd, as a company, build a big data center and you'd put these servers in them, or you would, you know, go to a co-location facility, which is similar to 3PL. And you'd say, you know, I want to rent 10 racks for, you know, five years. And you don't know what you're going to need for five years, but you have to sign a long-term contract. And so AWS, which is Amazon Web Services, came along and said, you don't need to build a data center. Uh, you don't need to sign a long-term contract. Just, uh, just pay for what you use. And so instead of individually handcrafting every single server, uh, AWS had building, block, building blocks you can get a two processor box or a four processor box or an eight processor box. You can get whatever you need and it's pre-configured and, and all you do is click a button and it's up and running. And is that in, is that in the cloud or is that? That is the cloud. Yeah. So that is the cloud. basically the cloud is there's, there's a bunch of server capacity running in data centers that you don't know where they are providing you the compute capacity, just like the electric grid, right? You don't know where your power is coming from, but you know, you plug something into the wall and it works. This is the this is the problem. See, Dave, if you'd send this like 25, 30 years ago, they would be hauling you off to the loony bin. And when you talk to people like me, I'm always near technology, I feel like, but some of that just is lost on me when you say, yeah, it's in the cloud. Okay, I trust you that it is in the cloud. So, But we, we've moved from this on-premise where you might say, hey, there was an update. Joe, I'm going to send you some CDs and I need you to go in and put those in and update all the computers or at least the server at your location. And I would have to do that. I remember that kind of activity. Now we, you know, no one ever sends you CDs anymore. And, That's right. and that server is not at your facility anymore. It's in this uh, cloud that Dave described to us. Yeah. And, you know, if we, I don't know if we're ready, but we can go to Flex, which is my right. current company. And, you know, traditionally, just like we used to have to build data centers or use a co-location facility with a long-term contract with, you know, doing logistics, you either had to build your own fulfillment centers or you build your own distribution centers, or you went to a 3PL who would want you to put a lot of upfront capital in and sign a long-term contract. 
The idea behind Flex is very similar to AWS, which is you don't really even need to know where the product's coming from. You, you know, you don't need to know what 3PL you're working with. You just know that you want to pay for the outputs. Right. right? And the output is two-day shipping right. or one-day shipping. So that's that was kind of a little bit of the inspiration for Flex. So before we get into what they do, so you were at Amazon for how long? Uh, 19 and a half years. Yeah, and well, you left. What year did you leave? I left in 2018. So, so still recent. So you moved up to vice president over there, right? Yeah. It must have been a steady rise. So how many employees did they have when you started? You know, I've heard uh, at corporate, it's it was probably between 1,500 and 2,000 employees. And then how many when you left? Again, there's over a million, including corporate and FCs. I think it's the largest employer in the country now, I yeah, think, if not. second behind Walmart, and it's on its way to being the first. Right. And, you know, at corporate, they probably had 100,000 folks when I left. So you you obviously did very well for yourself. So so you joined Flex, leaving. And again, guys, there's Amazon Flex, and then there's the Flex where Dave works. We'll call it the... Uh, Dave Flex. So when when you left to go, what made you move to Flex? What what opportunity did you, did you see there? Well, I actually I actually left Amazon independently of moving to Flex. I yep. left and I, I I took a year off and I found that I was really bored. You know, it turns out, you know, just to be completely candid, at my level there's not very many jobs in Seattle <laughs> for me. Right. And and at the time, you know, things have changed so much in the last year and a half. At the time, people weren't hiring remote at the senior leadership level. There weren't a lot of things going on in Seattle. And so, you know, I talked to a few other companies, but then a friend who was at Madrona, who's a venture capitalist firm in Seattle, venture capital firm, he said, hey, you know, the the folks at Flex, they've got a huge TAM, huge, huge target addressable market, great product market fit. And they need some help with the right. product. So, so say, say that one more time because I just started hearing people say TAM lately. <laughs> so, TAM is total addressable market. Yeah, or target addressable market or target total addressable market. Yeah. yeah, but that basically yes. means like See, we how don't much make money up. Being... We don't make up any good acronyms here <laughs> in the Midwest. I feel like we're like way behind. You guys get them all. <laughs> Everything starts in California, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but the, the idea is like if you've got a big market to serve you're going to have a much more opportunity to grow right. a big company. And you came from a company that probably inspired that thinking among a lot of other companies. So so after many years of being at a very successful company and having a great career, I'm sure you could have probably just said, that's it. I'm going to uh, float around in my boat and do nothing for the rest of my life. <laughs> but you went to work, did some consulting, and then what made you join Flex? What I mean, I'm sure you had other opportunities that you thought about. Yeah, I mean, I did. I, I did think about sailing on my boat and doing some consulting. And what I found is I was a social creature, and I didn't have enough social interaction. And so Scott introduced me to Carl, who's our founder and CEO. And you know, we kind of hit it off. And you know, warehousing has been in my blood for twenty years. Right. And you know, he said, "I want to move fast." I said, "How about tomorrow?" <laughs> he said, "Well, maybe not tomorrow, but we can, you know, have an interview on Friday." <laughs> And between the time I met Carl and the time I signed, signed my offer letter was about 10 days. And so we moved pretty quickly. Right. I guess so. And so you've, this, this is what I think has been interesting. And, and again, this, this applies both to Flex and it also applies to where you came from in Amazon. When you think about it at the highest level, Amazon's a technology company and then so is Flex. But then, but you look and go, Amazon has tons of fulfillment centers. 
and you go, how did this ever happen that that Amazon has all of these fulfillment employees and all these physical locations? It's like unlike any other tech company of its scale that would do such a thing. I mean, right now, can you imagine Microsoft saying we're doing uh, we're going to get into something that requires us to have a whole bunch of fulfillment employees? It just it's it's it it baffles the mind, but makes sense when you talk about the customer experience that they want to have. Yeah, I mean, you know, I used to sell people on coming to Amazon and say, you know, there's four or five, you know, tech companies who are at the top, you know, the most valuable companies in the world is Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, Alphabet, right? And none of the other companies have any physical presence. You know, Apple has Foxconn, and they have some level of supply chain, but it's for 10 SKUs. You know, Microsoft doesn't have any physical presence to speak of, Facebook and Google as well. And so you know, the world is still 80% offline, maybe it's 75% offline now. And so that the addressable market for online and offline together is enormous. Yeah, it's a cra- crazy. So what does Flex do? We are a marketplace that matches shippers who need capacity to do fulfillment, distribution, or just to store things with space in existing 3PLs. And what we bring to the table for the shipper is no upfront costs, no long-term contracts, and a single integration, which allows the shipper, and these could be enterprise companies like Walmart or Procter & Gamble, allows them access to all of these 1,500 buildings in our in our network, in our supply network, uh, with, with a single integration to our technology. And so for the shippers, it's a huge benefit because you, you don't have to sign long-term contracts and you get access to buildings when you need them, for how long you need them, where you need them. For the operator, we bring our warehouse management system, we bring customers, we bring industrial engineering talent, and we need bring sort of logistics experience. And so we can take and up-level these warehouses so that they can service big enterprise players. Do they end up using your software for their entire operation or just for your customers? Primarily, they use it for our customers. And so you can have a 3PL who's got nine different clients using six different operating systems or six different WMSs in the same building. Well, you know what's interesting? I had a podcast uh, not so long ago with uh, some people who make WMS software, and they were talking about, I asked them, what percentage of your customers have one location? And they said, probably 50%. And so let's just say I am selling... I'm selling the rubber thing on the back of my phone, right? The thing, the phone protector. Pretty low-tech thing, but I have... Let's just say I, I I want to be same day next day in all markets, and I can't go to one of those guys who says, "Yeah, I have a fantastic operation, and it's in Indiana." And I think Indiana is one of those locations that's the best if you have can only have one. But it's not same day next day to Dave's house in, <laughs> in Mercer Island. It's not same day to Texas or next day. And so I think that we're going to find a guy like that, like me and my 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 phone protector. I'm going to have to find multiple locations or one big company that says I can do it all. And I think it can make sense if if I have to have multiple warehouses close to my markets. Flex makes a lot of sense because you probably have warehouses in every market, right? Totally. And that's one of our big selling propositions. So I'm glad you brought that up. You know, first of all, people do want to have, you know, often have flexible infrastructure as well as fixed infrastructure. So you may have a big building with lots of automation that costs you $50 million in Ohio or Indiana, as you said. But that's going to give you three to seven day shipping. And what you really want is next day. And so you can take your fast movers and you can forward deploy those 
to, you know, every NFL city and do same day in every NFL city. And, you know, if you go to a traditional 3PL, they'll say, oh, I can cover New York and Chicago, but you'll have to talk to somebody else in California. And so then you're paying, you know, signing a long-term contract for each of those buildings with some upfront capital. And then you're doing multiple integrations to multiple different 3PLs. With Flex, we can put you in two buildings to start, New York and Chicago. But then if you say, I want LA, San Francisco, Raleigh, Atlanta, and so on and so on, we can scale up as you go and provide you buildings in each one of those cities. And so we, since there's we no all capital. Need, we want that national footprint and most most warehousing companies can't provide that on their own. Totally. Most warehousing companies can't provide that on their own and they're going to want you to pay some upfront capital for each of those buildings and you may have to do multiple integrations. And so with Flex, we, we, we uh, combat all of those problems by saying it's still pay as you go you can scale up, you can scale down, and we have nodes in each of those cities. Yeah. So you mentioned NFL cities, and that's come up sometimes on my podcast. I think what you mean by NFL cities is cities that have NFL football teams are the ones that are the major cities in America. And totally. so you want from all those locations, most likely I'm going to have to be same day, next day in all those locations at a minimum. And then there's cities, and I'm in Michigan here, so Grand Rapids and Lansing probably would have a pretty high expectation that we're same day next day also, even though they don't have NFL t- city, NFL football team. By the way, there's an old joke and it's not funny, but it's about our Lions. It says Grand Rapids wants to get a professional football team, but the NFL won't let them until Detroit gets a football team. <laughs> <laughs> not funny for yeah. us Lions fans. <laughs> but anyway. I mean, you can do next day. You can do next day into Grand Rapids. Right. Being out of Detroit. Suburban Detroit, right? Uh, yes. But doing same day is where you really have to be. You have to have deep node node localization. What do you mean by node localization? Sorry. You, you have to have nodes or warehouses near where you're going to deliver to, you know, within yep. 20 miles or 50 miles. Dave, one of the things that's also coming up in my podcast, every other every other company wants to talk about sustainability. And I think one of the things we in the transportation and logistics, we all want sustainability because that's what our customers are asking. If the brands are asking, consumers are asking the brands, the brands are asking us. And I think it's going to be incumbent. I think the brands are going to want this. And I think it'll be good for us too is push back a little bit on the same day, next day. Sometimes you absolutely positively want something same day, next day. Sometimes it's just, I need that toothpaste. I don't really need it today, but it's, if I can get it, I want it. And we have to kind of push, again, push back's the wrong word. I think we have to educate the consumer on the impact of the, the environmental impact of some of this, this deliveries. Yeah. I mean, our Amazon would argue, and I think I, I am in their camp. And I think they've just published data that says this, that having a UPS driver bring a package to your house is actually much more environmentally sustainable than having you drive to the mall and, and shop there. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's always been the, the talking point. And I literally saw in the last couple of weeks that they published a report with some data on that. Right. The other thing is, think about like the last mile is the most unsustainable part. Right? Correct. Because you've got 10,000 units of your phone cover in a truck and you're paying a penny a truck and that, you know, you've got a full truck that goes across the country. And then you're putting one unit in a box and you've got right. cardboard and you've got the gas and so on. And so last mile is, is less sustainable than sort of the middle mile. And so what you're doing by going to next day, same day is actually shortening the last mile. Because the number of miles driven by the UPS driver or the Swift courier or whatever, they're going maybe 10 miles. Whereas right. if you're going from Indiana, there's a lot of mileage from there to 
you know, right. It's in New York so your City. point is, so your point is, if I can get to that node, more nodes and do it cost effectively or and being efficient, I actually am lessening my environmental impact, which makes sense because again, the full trucks is not the problem. It's the empty trucks. It's the underutilized space in trucks that we struggle with. Yep. And you know, there are companies, you know, one of our neighbors in Seattle is Convoy, I guess. They've been on the podcast a few times. Yeah. I mean, for millennia, people have been trying to fill trucks full, fuller, right? <laughs> when they were carts, they were trying to fill carts fuller. Right. And so they continue. And now we have a lot more technology. Convoy, Uber Freight, all these folks are trying to figure out how do we eliminate deadhead miles? How do we fill the trucks fuller? And that's all, you know, there's a, a money component to that, a financial component, but there's also an environmental component. Right. Whereas if you're, if you don't have deadhead miles, you're being more productive. Right. And I think that, I think that we've, we've already all figured out that the right way to fill up those trucks is with data, right? If we all know that, if we all know that I've had Andrew Leto on my podcast from Emerge and he's the founder of Global Trans. And one of the things he said is when a truck picks up your shipment and starts to move it, he says, it's most likely not the best truck to pick up your shipment and move it. It's just the one that was the easiest right now. And again, if especially if it was done with human power, right? Where I just said, I know a guy, he's not that far, he'll pick it up. It worked out, but maybe environmentally and cost-wise, we can reduce the uh, empty miles and reduce the uh, driving. More money for everybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the good news is that in this particular case, sustainability and financial success are completely aligned. Yes, I like that. And so the trucks want to burn more, burn less labor and burn less gas, which is directly related to the sustainability. And so, and we have now with the data and the technology that these companies are using, we have the path to fill trucks fuller like we never have before. Right. Let's touch on this again one more time. So if I'm, if I'm a, a shipper, I'm the guy who makes this, this phone protector. Let's just say I'm right now working at a, working with somebody who says one location in Indiana. Not picking in Indiana here, but it isn't same day, next day to everywhere. And then they realize that the market's changing and they need to be more responsive, faster. What does it look like when they reach out and talk to you guys? Yeah. And so they'll come to us and say, we really want a one day offering or a same day offering. And we can do some modeling for them in our network planning software to say, you know, how do we look at the transportation costs? If you're in one node or three nodes or seven nodes or nine nodes. And so by putting inventory closer to the customer, you actually save on transportation cost and reduce the time and you know increase your shipping speed. So it's good and good. You know what? Why why wouldn't people do that? You know, right. the first reason is because building a bunch of buildings is expensive, and even going to several different three PLs is expensive. And so we've kind of taken that off the table, it, it being too expensive because we were completely variable cost driven, and so you're only looking at opex, not capex, which which people like. Um, and then the second reason is that you add additional complexity to their supply chain. So if they just send everything to one building. Their inbound supply chain is very simple. Right. As you say, if you shorten the last mile by, by building these nodes that are near customers, you're actually lengthening the middle mile. And what do I mean by lengthening the middle mile? I mean, adding complexity to your ERP system. And so you have to cut 12 POs, right, to go to 12 warehouses right. instead of cutting a single PO that comes to your Indiana warehouse. And I, I've, I've worked on systems like that at Amazon, and we have you know basic functionality to ha- help the customers do that as well. So we like eliminate the sticker shock from high capital up front. Uh, we eliminate the 
the well, we give flexibility by not having long-term contracts, and then we help with the technology to reduce the complexity of trying to inbound to right. multiple different fulfillment centers. So, so Dave, let's assume my my plastic phone covers are made in China, and they come through that very crowded port out by you. Yep. <laughs> well, better yet, I'd be better off if I brought it into Washington or. Oregon. <laughs> You'd be better off in Tacoma than in Long Beach for sure. Yeah. So I bring it into Tacoma and maybe it catches uh, right over to the railroad and then it gets taken maybe to Chicagoland and then it gets trucked over to in the, this Indiana warehouse. And yep. that's the way they're doing it today. Now, when I switch to you guys, I would say, okay, I'm going to have to ship it to multiple. Are they the ones shipping it to multiple locations, to multiple nodes, as you called it? Yeah, so we can do it in several different ways, but you know, the shippers who are interested in doing these multi-node operations often have the sophistication where they can do the inventory planning and inventory placement and inbound right. transportation well. If they don't, we can help them by both doing the math around, uh, you know, where do we, how much inventory of each SKU do we put in each building? Right. Um, and then by arranging some transportation and potentially having a sort of a cross dock node, which says send, send, send some to the East Coast and some to the West Coast, and then we can distribute it from there. But that's part of the scoping okay. process we do with each customer is, you know, how are we going to, you know, we together, how are we going to build an inbound support? supply chain plan to support this multi-node network. So so once I have, let's just, so now let's just say they've made that move and now they say, okay, rather than going out one rail truck over to Indiana, now sending it, maybe cross dock, sending some to the West Coast, some to the East Coast, maybe, it, maybe it's catching LTL and it's going to all these locations. And now I've got it in 20 locations across the country. Now my, my concern would be, how do I know where to send my inventory? I know I have some sales data, but now I've got a little bit of a problem. I don't want to, I don't want to carry a ton of inventory everywhere either. Yeah, and there, Fashions change on my, on my beloved phone covers. Right. There are several models which you can look at. And, you know, a lot of this is textbook. <laughs> inventory planning. Inventory planning. And, you know, you want to look at the, your, your demand over the last six weeks, your volatility in demand and figure out how much out of stocks you can live with. And, you know, the more in stock you have, the more safety stock you're going to have to carry, which means more working capital. And so, you know, you right. can be quite intentional by saying, you know, I want to be in stock 100% of the time, but that's going to cost me more, or I'm okay at 90% and it's going to cost me a little less, or I'm okay at 70%. Right. So do you advise your customers or is that on them? I guess we have sort of consultative engagement or we can go through, right. you know, we can say we can do it for you and, and we have systems to do that, or you can do it all on your on your own, or like, let's work together because we have experience, right. several people on the team who have experience in demand forecasting and inventory called predictive inventory management. And sometimes you've got big tech companies, big cloud companies who say, we want to offer this as part of our ERP offering in our cloud. They call it like predictive inventory management right. and they want to do it. We're happy to plug into that. You know, we think where we are uniquely capable is to be the physical manifestation of these math problems. And, you know, we can do the math problem. Microsoft can do the math. Google can do the math problem. You can do it on your own. Any of those people can do the math problem. But to actually operationalize that it, with physical assets in all these cities, we are the only right. one, only game in town. Right. And it's interesting. So I mentioned the phone covers. Well, those are relatively cheap, right? And if I have to throw some out more than anything, I probably want inventory. I never want, if a customer doesn't get my phone cover, they might switch to another one. So I'm, I'm, I'm they're cheap. I will make sure that I always have inventory. Now, switching to maybe a little more difficult. Do you guys do cold chain stuff? 
we do a little bit of cold chain. Um, it, it's not our, it's not in our sweet spot. You know, if our customers come and ask us, we will, we will, <laughs> we'll try to do our best to help them, but it's, it's a, it's a lot of complexity. Yeah. Because now I have to worry if I'm, I'm cold chain, I have to, I mean, this, it does, it doesn't, the problem exists anyway, <laughs> whether, whether flex is involved or not. The problem exists that now I have to, if I, if I'm talking about, you know, the vaccine is in the news. If I have vaccine or if I have, uh, and I don't know that they would necessarily store that publicly right now, but vaccine or something that's going to go bad at some point, the, the math gets harder. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because your frozen cold chain, it actually is, is simpler easy. than your, you know, your chill chain, right? Right. Because frozen, like things don't expire. Just put it, like I work with a company that ships meat called Crowd Cow. And, you know, they, they bring in Wagyu beef from Japan and they bring in meat from all different artisan farms, but they can keep it frozen. And so they don't have a big shrink problem. Whereas if you're doing HelloFresh or Amazon Fresh or something right. and your produce is shrinking and you need to, you know, you have to put a thermometer effectively in every box <laughs> to figure out if, you know, if they've stayed cold enough, uh, that's a much more complex problem. So we talked about the shipper. So this is a good solution because again, it allows me, it gives me the technology and the inventory space, the, the storage space where I need it, anywhere in the country. Now, what do, what do you do? What's good for you? What's good when shipper, I mean, when 3PLs or warehousing companies come to you, fulfillment companies? Yeah. What, what value do we bring to the operator? You know, the first thing is they, there's always space that's standing fallow, right? That's earning $0 per month in revenue. And so if they can put someone in there for a few months, it's better than earning $0. So that was where we started. But as we've gotten more, advanced, you've got, obviously, you have the great shippers like Geodis, XPO, and DHL who have industrial engineering teams and sales teams and so on. And we work with them. But where we found that we can add a ton of value is on sort of not the XPOs of the world that call it mom and pop or regional yeah. heroes or whatever you, description you want to give it. And they may have been doing pallet in, pallet out, you know, have 10 forklift drivers in the building, and they're making 20, 20 bucks, 30 bucks a square foot on their building. If we can bring them a big customer who wants to do fulfillment, and instead of having 10 forklift drivers, you have 100, 100 or 200 pickers in the building, you're going to make 100 bucks a square foot, not 20 bucks a square foot. And these folks have never done a deal this size. But with our technology, with our sales team, with our industrial engineering, with our operational expertise, we can up-level them so they can do a 20,000 shipments a day, 30,000 shipments a day uh, operation. So do, do, do those do those um, pickers, do they work for Flex or do they work for that customer? They work for the 3PL. So the, the 3PL owns the labor and the building and anything in the building. And then we bring yep. the warehouse management system, we bring the customer, and then we bring some industrial engineering to help them the lay out the space. Yeah. And what's interesting is we talk obviously a lot on my podcast about e-commerce and we talk about traditional warehouse or e-commerce needs fulfillment. And then we talk about traditional warehousing. And I think there's a lot of guys, uh, companies who've said, yeah, we've been delivering for 50 years to these retailers and we know this business really well. They might be very advanced in delivering to retail or I'm, I'm, I'm in Detroit area. So a lot of people would be very advanced in supporting manufacturing and. The challenge is when somebody says, hey, I want to, instead of having, as you said, the forklift drivers, I'll say instead of having tons of truckload go out every day or less than truckload, now all of a sudden I'm talking about e-commerce. So rather than 50 LTLs a day, now I've got 20,000 small parcels going out in a day. It's a different business and a different vibe. Yeah, and it's it's hard 
for film, for film, for film it's hard. And lots of people have never done it, but you know we are there to help these operators level up into fulfillment, which is a huge growing business. You know the the path between Procter and Gamble's manufacturing center and Walmart's DCs is a well worn path, right? They've been running and optimizing, taking pennies out of that transportation network for decades, if not centuries. Right. Fulfillment and e commerce is a whole new deal, and everybody's trying to figure out what they need to do. And so, where there is growth, there is pain, and we're there to help with the pain. Right. The reality is it's, it's not one or the other anymore. It's both, right? So you say maybe it's a traditional traditional warehousing guy who says, hey, I would like to end my years in 10, 15 years and retire and never have done any fulfillment, but <laughs> my biggest customer is asking for it. So I have no choice. That's right. Like it's it's complex, but it's actually much more profitable or potentially more profitable, certainly higher revenue. It's the expertise that I struggle with. That would yeah. be so. But if you can bring them the technology and you can bring them the expertise and say, hey, we're doing this everywhere. I've implemented this over and over again. There's not a lot of people who can say that. Yeah. And we've, we've had warehouse partners who we, who had never done more than 500 shipments a day of e commerce. And we signed a contract on day one. On day 21, we started doing inbound. So we stood this up within three weeks and within a month. After that, they were doing 20,000 shipments a day. And so Damn. that was huge for them, right? Because they're, they're getting huge ROIC on their assets, which is the building. And they get to employ more people and they make Wait, more revenue. Said, so you said ROIC. So that's return on invested, invested capital. Capital. So explain that, please. Yeah. So you, you've, you've bought a warehouse and you bought it for whatever five, you know, five million dollars or maybe 50 million. Who yep. knows? And. Again, you're making $20 a square foot per month or $20 a square foot per year. And all of a sudden you're making $100 a square foot per year because, you know, you're taking a margin on every one of those people and all, all your labor and all those shipments. And so if you think of $100 a square foot for whatever, a 75,000 square foot building versus $20, you, you have a lot more margin there to, to pay the rent. Very nice. Very nice. I'm not a physics major, but I know $100 is better than $20. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. So it seems like, it seems like a really, I got to tell you, Dave, I talk to tons of people every year. I talk to a lot of people who run warehouses. There's one not too far from me, uh, maybe 30 miles away. I know right where it's at. I see it's right off the expressway. And they always call once a year, once every two years and say, we really need help growing. What can you help us do? And, and I always say, do you have a warehouse management system yet? No, uh, but we're thinking about it. I'm like, Jeez, <laughs> stop thinking about it. And what you, what you guys could say is you don't even have to invest in a warehouse because a lot of them, they don't want to invest the money. Yeah. And they don't might not even have the expertise. I mean, locally, they might not say, look, we don't want to hire an IT guy and have to manage all that. We don't want to spend the money on that software. And you say, yeah, or, you don't or, have to. Or putting a Wi-Fi network in is, is sort of the minimum bar for us is like you have to be able to, you know, have to have scanners and they have to be on connected to the Internet. But even that is, you know, many thousands of dollars to put it in. But if you don't have like if you can't keep track of the inventory in your building, you're going to be like, oh, Bob, put that pallet of diapers over there. So we need to make sure that Bob Bob's in tomorrow and we need to ship them out. <laughs> and God forbid Bob quits and we don't know where our stuff's at. That's right. And so you know, I came from Amazon where everything was scanned into a bin and scanned out of a bin and like it was everything was tracked with with scans. And so uh, going to these other warehouses is was an eye opener that, you know, there's a huge breadth of levels of complexity and levels of technology being implemented. 
Dave, maybe I'm dragging you into details you don't have to get into every day. But when I take something out of, let's just, you mentioned the bin. So I can, let's just say I grab my cell phone cover. Am I scanning the bin that it came out of or am I scanning it? Both. Okay. Or so I think when you scan it into a bin, you scan the product and then you scan the bin and now it's in the bin. Right. And then when you come to get it, we will send you to that bin and say, take something out of it. And if things go well, you'll just take it out and scan the item and put it in your cart. So, and then scan it again when it's being packed? Yes, then you would scan it into the box. Every state transition, it, you know, the, the item always has to be in a container, and the container can be the bin, it can right. be a pallet that's sitting over here, it can be a human, or it can be a, a box at the pack station. So, what I think what you described is best practice, and I don't know that it happens everywhere. I think some places don't uh, don't have individual scans barcodes on items, and I understand why it's a, it's an extra cost. All right, well we've gone all over the place, so there's a really a good reason for shippers to do this, which is again get that national network, get bringing that expertise that can get me across the country, and and on the other side for the third party logistics company, the warehousing company. There's a really good reason to go and connect and be a partner with Flex. So before we get off of this topic and before we leave today, I want to understand you've got a really interesting career and you've been really successful. And I think what's interesting is people who have had that level of success, they, they bring different skill sets, obviously, and there's no one size fits all. But why do you think you were able to be so successful first at Amazon and now jumping over and having the success at Flex? What are some of the, if you were to go back and have to advise a friend or family member on how to have someone be successful, what would you what would you suggest? I would say uh, when I was at Amazon, people would ask me that. I'd say persistence and resilience. <laughs> you know, there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. And, and this, you know, I do CrossFit and it's always like you know, the last minute, well, like the last three reps are the ones that get you over the top. And I think the same thing is true where, you know, you work, you work, you're working hard, you're trying to work smart and you're trying to achieve a goal. And like getting up that last day when you're exhausted and saying, you know, we need to get these packages out the door. We need to get this thing stood up and push, push, push. Certainly when I was younger, when I was, you know, more junior, when I was an operator, like, Hey, I need to get this network stood up and I'm going to brew some egos or whatever, but I have to get this thing done. So that I think made me successful at sort of continuing just push, 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 push. You know, as I got more senior, I went from producing product. The, the framework I have is product right. process people. So the product I produced as a technical project manager was right. like getting the thing over the line. Right. And then as I got more senior, it was like, how do we set up processes make sure we're operationally excellent and that we have the right people on the team and all of these things. And then as I got to be VP, you know, now that I flex the CTO, I spend most of my time on people. Like, do we have the right people at the company? Are, do we have some wrong people at the company? How are we going to address those things? But I spent a ton of time on executive recruiting because, you know, so, I think that so drives first you developed. Else. So first your deliver rules was just a product or a project. And then eventually it was a process. So it can be repeatable, do a good job, more effective, more efficient. And then it was people. That's, uh, that's an interesting, I've never heard, I've, I've heard people use that when I was in automotive, we always said product, people and uh, process different people would use different orders but it was yeah. always the same interesting yeah. so you mentioned the resilience and you mentioned persistence i mean you got a physics degree a phd so you must have had to use it for that what other thing did you you're doing crossfit so you're at least an athlete right now were you an athlete when you're growing up i uh, i was a wrestler on the high school wrestling team oh yeah oh, okay. i was you know i wasn't the best wrestler <laughs> but i made it to the state tournament my senior year 
that makes you the best wrestler, Dave. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, relatively speaking, that makes you the best wrestler. You're in the top point zero 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 one. Certainly in the top 32 in Missouri in my weight class. But it's interesting because, you know, we all have comparison sets that we work with. And, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, well, I was an okay wrestler, but some people would say great wrestler, right? And then I was like, well, I made it to VP at Amazon, so I'm moderately successful. And people from the outside again would say, that's extraordinarily su- successful. But my thing is like, oh, my buddy got there faster. Yeah, it's funny because I've said this a few times to people lately. Is We're living in a world where we've had so much success that a lot of people on my podcast now say, and then I took a year or two off. Do you have one friend or family member in the generation above you who took a year off? No. And and by the way, if there's anyone who's ever going to take a year off, it'd be um, professors. They They have that sabbatical. I always remember my advisor at Michigan said, I want you to take this t- sabbatical from, I was like, I'm an automotive. We're launching products in China. Sabbatical means fired. <laughs> There's no such thing. I go, they, that's only happens over here in academia. <laughs> but I can't remember my dad ever taking a sabbatical, nor any of the faculty I worked with at North Carolina. We have achieved a lot of success in this country. And then again, there's a lot of people who have the ability and the and the wherewithal to take some time off. And uh, so you grew up as a wrestler. You grew up obviously being a pretty good student. So you must have showed, did you, how about jobs? Did you have lots of jobs as a kid? I was a paper boy when I was 13, I think. And I you know rode my bike around the neighborhood and threw papers on people's porches. And then I I quit after, I don't know if it's eighth or ninth grade, because my mom wanted me to focus on high school and didn't want me being distracted. And so I didn't have a job until when I was, I finished high school. My parents moved to Iowa. I moved there for the summer with them. And I was like, hey, dad, can you get me a job in the, you know, in the office, in the air conditioning? And he didn't do anything. And my mom (laughs) said, oh, you know, our realtor's husband runs a construction company. And so I was swinging a hammer in the 110 degree heat in Iowa. And that was like a great experience because, you know, you, you learn like there are people who actually work with their hands and, you know, same as the warehouse folks, right? Like these are the people who are building America. And, you know, we, we always need to remember that as we're sitting in our cushy jobs, working from home oh my in God, front of yeah. their monitors all day, that these are the folks who are, you know, building America. I remember working in, in landscaping and construction jobs before college. And, uh, and I remember being like 18 years old and, you know, <laughs> showing up there at seven in the morning going, God, my back hurts from all the, what we did yesterday. My back hurts. And I was thinking, my knees hurt. I'd be creaky in the morning. I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I never said anything because the guys I worked with were all older. <laughs> yeah, you go from weight weight room strong to old man strong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you don't hurt yourself, and and you know one one other thing, and I'd like to touch on this because I know you have probably unique insights on it. One of the things that I struggle with when we talk about fulfillment, it reminds me of old uh, factories and and automotive is. Those factories in automotive got more and more automated and they became more and more uh, safe. And I say this all the time on my podcast. If you worked in a factory 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you came home tired, sweaty, dirty, potentially hurt. I mean, and, and maybe, the, maybe the hurt was I got injured in an accident or maybe I'm doing damage to my body every day yeah. uh, because of the nature of the work. And I, I don't even notice it till it's too late. And I think... When we talk about fulfillment centers, we get people walking around picking picking boxes up and moving them. And I think that's fine. There's going to be some physical labor, but we have to find a way to get 
beyond that because somebody can't work in that job for 20 years without injury. Yeah, no, it's a hard problem. And when I was at Amazon, we put robots in and A, every fulfillment center we put robots in had more people working on it after we put robots in than before. And so I I hope that means the output was so much more. Yeah, the output was was more because the the robots enabled the humans to do what they do well. Right. And you know, there were there was lots of news articles and what forth, especially in the UK, about oh, these pickers have to walk ten miles. And so this was like to make the pickers' lives better as well as to make change the economics and as well as the scale of labor needed, like robots were necessary. And so right. now now you don't have pickers walking ten miles a day. Right. Which should increase their safety. Yep. And I think this this is what I saw in automotive is like right now, if you were to walk through an automotive assembly plant, you will notice this. And again, the assembly plant's the highest level. The manuf- Some of the lower level, the tier ones and tier twos might have a different situation, but people press are not in the same position of potential injuries. It's just not the norm. And there's a lot of people working on the ergonomics so they make sure they don't get the long-term repetitive injuries. And there's really no such thing as like, big safety problems. They just don't have them anymore. And, you know, a lot of people now are coming home. They aren't sweaty. They aren't dirty. They aren't uh, exhausted. Uh, I mean, they might be tired. We're all tired after work, but, and they're not injured. And I think that we, as we go forward, we have to figure out a way to make those, those jobs palatable. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole question that we probably don't have time to go into here now though, is like, if, you know, you come up with autonomous trucks, (laughs) And autonomous cars and, you know, robots working at McDonald's, like you are taking away those entry level jobs. Right. And and what do you do then? Are, right. are you going to reskill those folks or universal yeah. basic income or what happens? Well, that's, you know, that's another point that I think is very important. So um, we have all these people who are in the gig economy who are supporting the supply chain. And we also have people in fulfillment centers that are supporting the supply chain. Most of them don't have supply chain degrees, obviously, or any degrees. And I think we have to find a way to say, no, you're not, you're not just a fulfillment guy who has to be in that job for 20 years. We have to find a way to move those guys up. And the idea of four years of college uh, to do it is, is bizarre now. I mean, it's just, we have to rethink that because you say, Hey, you know, rather than you making 40 grand a year picking or 50 grand, whatever you're making in that, you can make a lot more. If you go back to school for four years and get a, a degree, <laughs> it costs you 80 or 100 grand. Hey, thanks for the advice, Dave. <laughs> I'll be right on that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really hard because you can't take four years off of working. Once you start working and you have a family, you're not going to take four years off. Amazon has actually a program called Career Choice, I see which that. is after you've worked for a year or two, you can sign up to get take classes often on site at the warehouse to be a commercial truck driver a nurse or an IT professional. And so those are all huge, huge, huge enablers to to careers that we need way more of. So I think it's a cool program. We need to start thinking that way. And I know there's uh, some companies I've interviewed already have talked about moving people out of the warehouses and into the supply chain. And again, if you had a son or daughter and they said, I'm going to go work in a uh, warehouse over the summer, you'd be like, okay, that's a good experience. They're going to, you know, see what real work is for one. But if they could walk away with supply chain yeah, experience, even better. I want them to be part of the ex- supply chain, not just the, the un- unspoken of underbelly of, of our business. Totally. Yep. So enough of my blather, Dave. Tell us a little bit about what's going on over at at Flex. 
again, one more time, who you guys serve and then how can we reach out to you? And what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile and a link to your website and anything else you give me. I'll put a link in the show notes. So great. Who do you guys serve? Our, our customers are primarily enterprise retailers and brands. Uh, you know, your Fortune 1000. We are an extension, a flexible extension of their existing logistics. And then digital natives, you know, high growth digital natives, venture funded, who are starting with no warehouses or one warehouse and they want to go from and one no to no knowledge of it either. <laughs> yeah. And like they're, they're product people. You know, many of these digital natives, they've got a product. And they should spend their time making that product better, creating new projects. Driving traffic. <laughs> Driving traffic. And we, we can take care of the back end for them. And we can do it at a two-day pace, a one-day pace, or a same-day pace. And so that should be just uh, lights out for them. And so that's our yeah. customers. And then on the other side, you do you do work with warehousing people. Do they reach out to you also? And do they do they have to kind of say, Dave, we, we are open to um, business if you bring us our way? Yeah. So we have a network development team who... You know, we've got a, a business development team who focuses on the shipper side, and then we have a network development team who focuses on the operator side. And we've got about 1,500 different warehouses in our database, and we work with some of them frequently and some of them less frequently. But if you if you want to get involved, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, and we'll have the pro, my profile there, um, and I can put you in touch with the right folks on our network development team. Yeah, it's very much just like uh, the broker model where uh, if you're a transportation broker, you know all of the carriers and you also bring them good shippers. And I think, you know, most of these guys now look the kind of the way you do, which is I have two, uh, two, two customers I have to take care of, right? Yep. The warehousers are like, bring me good business, bring me expertise, put money in my pocket. And the shippers are like, help me out, make me successful. Totally. And we had, you know, similar marketplace model when I was at Amazon with merchants and uh, we had yeah. our SVP used to say, uh, sellers want three things. They want to make money, make money and make money. <laughs> and like, <laughs> exactly. they will do a lot of things to accomplish those three goals. And, exactly. and so, uh, you know, I think the same is true for operators as well as trucking folks. And, and we want to make it easy for them to ch- accomplish those three goals. Excellent. Well, Dave, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming. Oh, before, one last thing. Are you going in, you guys going to any conferences coming up here? I know uh, we're kind of getting out of COVID, so. Yeah, I did a presentation with ASCM Connect with Rick Watson, who's a consultant. He's got his own e-commerce consulting firm. Oh, yeah. He's going to be on my podcast coming up. He's been on it before. That's actually how I connected with you. Yeah. You were doing something with Dave Watson. Yeah. So, so we- say that that's ASCM. What is that? American Association of Supply Chain something. I don't know. <laughs> Supply Chain Management, probably. Yeah. Rick Rick called me and said, hey, do you want to do this thing? And so I said, of course. And we actually, are, our presentation is on the rise of Amazon logistics. And it'll be, I think, September 15th. Excellent. So if you if you can, give me a link to that. And when I, I'm, I'm actually talking to Dave, I think next week or the week after about Amazon Dave retail. Clark? I did a podcast with Dave. It was Amazon versus Walmart. Or no, I'm saying that. It was Amazon versus Target. And then I said the last minute, could we add Walmart in there? So it's Amazon versus Target versus Walmart. And he was an excellent guest. He He's very knowledgeable. He is one of the better follows on LinkedIn. Yeah. If you want to know great. about e-commerce, Dave is the guy to talk to. This Dave too, but Dave Watson, Dave yeah. Glick. And I can spell both your names easily. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's Rick Watson, but... Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Rick Watson. I can spell his name. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I'm not sure exact date, but it's coming up. 
and I think it's a good good listen. Yep. Uh, I don't have any other conferences I'm going to yet. We'll see what happens with Delta and all this stuff. Yep. Send me a link to the, that conference, and uh, we is that a virtual or is that real? That one's virtual. All right. Well, then that's a good one to attend. Anyway, thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your story and the Flex story. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yep, thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.